it's always an exciting time in my office. Um, maybe not, you didn't sense the excitement, but in my office, whenever we start a new um, sermon series, and of course, this is the our, our Christmas series. It's, it is maybe a little early for some people, but, um, you know, I thought, you know, we got good two months here to really kind of develop um, an idea and, and really look into God's Word and to understand, and, and kind of the the genesis for this came from, as I've talked about before, about, you know, the a Charlie Brown Christmas. And, and some of you um, know when this first came on. It was back in 1965, and um, I don't remember that. I was, I, was, I think, one. Um, but some of you remember that more vividly. Some of you remember watching it with your grandkids and things like that, um, and maybe with your kids. But, uh, you know, it, it wasn't supposed to be on the air. It, like, it was rejected by, um, you know, several times. And then finally it was, it was put on. And, and, you know, it was one of those rare times in TV history when, when God's Word was just, was just read. And it was just there for, you know, everyone to, to hear. And, and if you remember the story, and I encourage you to do some homework, and I know it's hard, um, um, Apple TV Plus is going to have it on December 1st, for those of you who are who uh, bit from the Forbidden Apple. Um, but the, you know, the, um, you know, it's on DVD, and a lot of you guys might remember. So it is a little harder to watch, but if you remember the story, you know, it, it's, it starts off with, you know, Charlie Brown, and most of you guys know Charlie Brown is that, kid whose famous line was good grief you know that's what he would say all the time and and things would always seem to go wrong nobody really appreciated him and he was always the you know good-hearted try-hard person but he wasn't cool and 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 all and people would you know kind of pick on him and things like that and so he's having his kind of typical gloomy attitude at the beginning where he's talking about christmas and you know, he goes and looks in the mailbox and there's no Christmas cards. And he's like thinking like, you know, why do I even look? I, I didn't I didn't expect there to be any. Um, and then he starts talking about how, you know, all of his friends, even though his friends are kind of mean to him a lot. But all of his friends, including his dog, are so caught up in all the, the, the lights and, the, you know, Santa Claus and the giving of gifts and the cards and, and all of the, you know, you know, who to get, you know, what for and things like that. And he, he's just wanting to know what is the real meaning of Christmas. And, you know, they, his friends try to help him. They even make him the director of the Christmas, of the Christmas play. And so if you, if you see the image that we're using, you know, that's the image of the, of the Christmas tree that he picks. He, he decides to kind of help the play. He's going to go, you know, get a Christmas tree. So he goes to the Christmas tree lot and, and he picks out the most pathetic tree that's there. But his, his reasons are just so great. He says, you know, this one needs a home. And so he gets it. He brings it to where they're practicing. He puts one ornament on it, and then it collapses because it's too weak to hold up one ornament. And, you know, he says, I killed it. And then he's in despair. And, you know, I think 
the Charlie Brown Christmas, it kind of connected with so many people. And you think about, we think like the commercialization of, Chris, of Christmas and, and all the crazy busyness that goes on around Christmas and the crowded malls. We think that's a modern thing, but no, it actually extends back much further. Charlie Brown Christmas kind of you know, struck what it was even like in the 60s. And it's funny that, that, that that's a common complaint we hear all the time, and not just from, from you know, um, Christians and in the church, but even, you know, from, from non-Christians. We, you know, we complain about the commercialism. We complain about the, the busyness. We complain about, you know, that, you know, that we just, you know, just so much to do and, you know, so many parties to go to and so many, you know, this and that and, you know, church activities and everything else. And yet we always give in to it. We all know it. And we, in some ways, kind of almost dread it. If you've ever been in, like, church work, like Cheryl and I have been in church work almost our entire adult lives, Christmas season is the most exhausting season of all. You know, you know a lot of pastors like to take, a, you know, a Monday off. I think pastors should take January off. You know, because... December is just, there's just so much going on. And we always say, oh, it's just too much. But we always end up doing the same thing. We always give in. And we always are there in January looking at our credit card bills. And, you know, they're way higher than we really, really wanted them to be. We're always looking around our houses that's full of stuff and we realize we filled it with more stuff. Will this year be different? I think kind of what this COVID thing, the good thing it's done is it's, is it's made us stop. It's made us stop thinking that all of these things that we couldn't live without, we have started to realize we can. Your kid doesn't have to be a professional soccer player and a professional saxophone player and a ballerina and the smartest kid at school. They don't have to be all of those things. And you don't have to make sure they get to all of those things so that they can be the greatest of everything at all times. We've realized that we don't have to do that. You know, we've realized so many times that the how many unnecessary trips we make to go to the store. Things like that. All of these things that we've just packed our lives with, we've been made to kind of slow down. And while I don't like pandemics and I don't like shutdowns at all, I like the fact that it's made us look at things that we thought we, could, we couldn't live without. And we found out we actually can. So what about Christmas? What about the Christmas season? Is it going to be any different? I remember when I was a kid and if my dad was preaching and he was ever getting on this kind of bent, or if I ever heard somebody, I would be like, hey, uh, stop it. You know, I'm only a kid once. You know, don't tell my parents to focus on Jesus they need to be focusing on me and, you know, my gifts and things like that. But will this year be different? 
Do you actually have a plan to make it different? I would encourage you that part of the reason we're starting early is to help you to just begin to say, oh, we're going to decide now. We, we're, we see this, a simple Christmas. And the focus is on who Jesus is. All right. Let's decide now. Let's decide now as individuals. Let's decide now as families. Let's decide now as a church. And this will be a simple Christmas. And I think as my daughter, I don't know if she still says it, but she said it for several years in a row, this will be the best Christmas ever. Because I think we're going to get back to what Christmas really is all about. And so for the next couple months, we're going to just look at some simple questions. We're going to just look at these simple questions. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? Why did he do it? What should we do in response? What is Jesus continuing to do? Why is this helpful? Well, it's helpful to help us focus, but I think it's helpful too that, that if we can understand and we can focus on who Jesus is, then we can actually begin to share that with others. Yes, you can, you can study theology, and it is deep. It is so deep. But this theology you need for salvation, it's not that deep. And it begins with the question, who is Jesus? And so I look forward to this. I look forward to the, the next couple months of, of really just kind of focusing, who is Jesus? A simple Christmas. Well, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to look at this passage from Colossians. But, you know, before we get there, you know, the other thing that's going on right now, in case you missed it, is there's actually an election going on. And it's a presidential election, right? And, and you know, the, the, we have all of this competition. You know, we have all this competition for, you know, you know who, who are you going to trust? Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to believe? And we were talking about this downstairs in, in our Sunday school class, that this is one of the times where, for some reason, you know, people who are otherwise very, like, reasonable and careful can be, just throw that out the window. They don't carefully consider things. They just, they, they, get, they get pushed and pulled by, you know, speeches, advertisement, news, whatever else, opinion polls, you know, emotions, things just pull us in all these different directions that how many people have carefully considered not just the position they support, but how many have carefully considered the opposing position? And don't, don't you know, make, a, make the mistake of saying, oh, yeah, I have. I know what Biden said about Trump. I know what Trump said about Biden, so I have carefully considered both sides. I listened to what Trump said about himself, and then I listened to what he said about Biden. I or, you know, I listened to what Biden said about himself, and I listened to what he said about Trump. Let me just tell you, it's never a good idea to understand someone else's position by, by listening to their enemies. Again, 
This happens all the time. And for some reason, we check our brains. And we just say, you know, I'm, I'm just going to do these things that aren't really what we would do in so many other situations. But who do you trust? But here's another question. Why do you trust them? Why do you trust them? In fact, ultimately, when you are determining things like who to vote for, whose authority are you ultimately holding candidates up to? Whose authority? Is it just what seems right to you? Is it just what seems what you've been told is right by, you know, other people, whether they be teachers, people in authority over you in other situations, or what just seems to make sense? Whose authority? See, we live in this world where it's really hard to know what to trust because there's so many things competing for our attention and competing for our allegiances. So much. We've been going through Proverbs in my Bible study in the Sunday school downstairs, and and it's funny because, um, you know, Proverbs has, we're only about to chapter 9, and it's talked about how Proverbs is, is calling, wisdom is calling out. Wisdom isn't hiding. Wisdom isn't hard to find. Wisdom is calling out. It, it talks about wisdom being at the gate, you know, the gates where everybody came in and out of the city. Wisdom's up on the wall, shouting out. Wisdom's on the busy streets. Wisdom is everywhere. But the problem is, as we read today in chapter 9, folly, foolishness, is also really loud. And it's everywhere too. So you can't tell simply by volume, either in terms of loudness or in terms of how much. Just because you have more information about something doesn't make it right. But we have this world that, that, that's just that's full of these things. And again, it's, it's not new. The only thing that's new in our world that, you know, doesn't really connect with the Proverbs world is that we have access to so much more information than before. That's the biggest difference. But the fact that in Proverbs, which was written probably about 25, 26, 2700 years ago, that Proverbs is telling us that wisdom and foolishness are loud and competing for your, you know, your attention tells you that this isn't a new thing. It's always been going on. So we're going to look at this passage. And this passage is, is from the book of Colossians. And Paul's writing this letter to the church at, at Colossae. And, and there's, there's a problem, and, and we're not 100% sure what the problem is. You can read, you know, different, you know, studies and commentaries about what the problem is, and, and they'll make all kinds of guesses. But here's the, the, the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that Colossae is like a lot of the other cities in the first century. 
there's, there's a coming together of cultures in a way that really hadn't been seen before in the world. That's one of the things the Roman Empire does is, is you know, through war and conquering and then control, they're also able to bring some kind of stability and peace. We have this interchange of cultures. And of course, that means that there's a lot more information, a lot more things that are like trying to pull their, uh, you know, people's attention. And so here's this, this you know, this kind of new faith you know, Christianity that's there, but they're in the middle of this thing where so many people are, are also pulling for their attention. And the temptation is to do this thing which is called syncretism. Syncretism means that you, you take already held beliefs and you try to like, you know, shape Christianity to fit your already held beliefs. These beliefs can be, you know, other religious beliefs. They can be philosophical beliefs. They can be, you know, cultural beliefs, tra- you know, traditions, rituals. And Coloss- Coloss- Colossians actually kind of lists all of them. And it just gives you this idea that, that they're in this world where there's so much, you know, competition for people's attention that these Christians believe Christianity but they also are, are trying to see how they can kind of adapt it to fit in to what they already believe. And by the way, understand, syncretism goes on every day. In fact, you've done it and you are probably doing it right now. There are certain things about Christianity There are certain things that the Bible says of what it means to follow Christ that you have kind of shaped it or ignored it or reinterpreted it so that it kind of fit into beliefs you already had that you didn't want to let go of. Or beliefs that were coming from your your culture, either through your your education or your interaction with other people or or whatever other sources of of information and and sources of authority that you allow in your lives. And and, and you've kind of shaped Christianity. And the reason I know you've done it, you might go, you don't know me. You know why I know you've done it? Because I've done it. It's been one of my, like, lifelong kind of goals is to is to keep looking at things that I believe that that the Bible teaches and to try as much as possible to to not you know think that there's syncretism going on there that I will let the claims of the boss the Bible be the claims of the Bible I will let the truth that's in God's word be the truth in God's word whatever that means whatever conflict that might bring me into with the rest of the world, whatever conflict that might bring with people in my family or even people in the church. And so there's this, this church that's, that's there and it's facing this danger of syncretism. And syncretism is, is, a, is a constant danger, constant threat that it's facing. And the point that that, um, Paul is going to make here 
right up front in the first chapter, he is going to help us understand that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is so preeminent. He is so much overall that you don't try to shape Jesus to fit into your already held beliefs. You, you see Jesus as the one who, who changes everything else. And so we look in this text, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And again, he's talking about Jesus here, and he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Um, if you read that and somewhere in your head this word doesn't pop up, you need to reread it. If somewhere in your head you read this and you don't go, wow. This is who Jesus is. Jesus isn't just a man. Jesus isn't just a baby. He's not just a great teacher. This is who he is. How dare us think we can cut and shape and mold Jesus to fit into our image, and yet we do it all the time. And it's not unique to us. Some of you, maybe even, I hope this isn't you, but some of you, maybe even, you know, seeing, picturing Jesus I saw this guy running the other day and he had on a, a Hawaii for Biden shirt. And you think, Jesus must be wearing a Biden shirt. Or maybe he had a MAGA hat on. Jesus must be wearing a MAGA hat. I mean, that, that, that's, what we, you know, that's, that's what we think. Because we're trying to fit Jesus into our political parties. We're trying to fit Jesus into, into our, our, our you know, philosophies. How dare us do that? He's the image of the invisible God. He's the creator. He holds all things together. We're not just paying like homage or our respects to a great man who lived thousands of years ago that we get inspiration from and so we want to follow his examples. If that's what Christianity is to you, you really don't understand what the Bible teaches. Unfortunately, that is what Christianity is to a lot of Americans who consider themselves Christians. He's a great man. Oh, we'll even call him God. But we won't put any real meaning behind that. 
He's a great man. He's a great example. But look at what Paul says here. And if you got issues with Paul, okay, that's different. You got issues with the Bible, what the Bible teaches, fine. You know, at least we're getting to what the real problem is. But if we believe the Bible is God's word and it's his truth and that it's absolute and it's for all time, then when we read this, it's telling us who our Lord is. The reason I chose that song, Jesus Messiah, is not, not because it's a new song or an old song. It's because I think that that's simple. it's simple. It tells us simply who Jesus is. And it tells us not just in the sense of what he does, what he's done for us on the cross, but it tells us that he's he's Lord of all. I I want, you know, if you've never heard that song before, I want you to, you know, we're gonna sing it every week. And I want you to sing it, and I want you to understand it that, that you can go find the lyrics. You can go look up what each one of those phrases means. You can go find the Bible verses that communicates each one of those thoughts. You can go do your study, and I hope that you will do that because then when you sing that, you will know who you're singing to. And it will deepen your love for Him. It will deepen your commitment to Him. And so here, I mean, I wish... uh, I wish I could just spend time just there's so much like 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 deep understanding of who God is here, but you know we don't have the time to do it this this morning, but I am going to tell you that on wednesday nights we we you know we we're going to be going through this passage a little more deeply, and I invite you to be a part of that and I also want to tell you um on Monday nights, not this week but starting next Monday, we're going to start going over you know our the most important doctrines, the most important beliefs that we have as Christians. And I'm going to try to explain it in as, you know, clear and kind of be, you know, kind of foundational beginning way as possible. But I, I want to encourage you. We, we need to know who Jesus is. We need to know um, his, his word. We need to know what really Christianity is all about. But here, for the sake of time, I just want to pick out a few points here. And the first thing is this, that this makes clear that Jesus is God. Now you might go, it doesn't say Jesus is God. And part of that's because in the New Testament, they're being careful. A lot of times in the New Testament, when they're using the word God, they're talking about God as, as God the Father. And so we, you know, we look back and we can kind of understand that's what they're doing. Uh, because in other passages, they will talk about Jesus as being Savior and God. And we see the you know, language there. It talks about Him being the image of the invisible God. When you see that phrase, firstborn of all creation, it's not really talking about He's born. It's really that, that, that position, that authority came in, in this culture that if you were firstborn, and the word that's used in the English down in verse 18, is preeminent. It's the same sense that he's, he's over all of creation. 
You know, it says down in verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. How can all of God, how can all of God dwell in someone or something that's, that's finite if God is infinite? Paul is giving us this, this very high Christology. And even that language of, uh, you know, where it talks about him being born and, and later, you know, in other passages, it talks about him being the son. Understand that when, when, that when the Bible is talking about the son of God, it wasn't saying that to say Jesus was less than his father. In fact, that meant that, that Jesus was of the same whatever God is, Jesus is. And it's because it's built on this, this, this biblical principle, which is also a principle that we follow in, in the rest of the world, is that, is that like begets like. And I've talked about this before. If you plant an apple tree, you don't expect puppies to grow on it. You expect apples, right? If, if you have a cat, sorry if you do, but if you do have a cat and your cat, you know, somehow gets pregnant as they seem to do almost spontaneously. If your cat gets pregnant, you expect kittens. You don't expect puppies. And you certainly don't expect apples. Like begets like. It's, so when it talks about Jesus being the Son, there's that, that connection that is actually saying, yeah, it's, it, it, he's, he's equal. See, when it talks about us being children of God, sons and daughters of God, it talks about us in terms of us being adopted or through a, a promise or a covenant. But with Jesus, it's different. In fact, it, just, it gives him things that only God can do. And it talks about him being creator, creator of all. Creation was through him, Creation was for him. But then you see this, this, this other point that we, we don't know what to do with this, so we jump past it. And, and it's this idea that Jesus unites all things. It says he holds all things together. It's why we, again, can't have in our minds how do I make Jesus fit into my beliefs or my life or what the world is saying is true? I have to start with what the Bible said is tr says is true about Jesus. That's where I begin. And it says, he, he holds all things together. And that's, you know, one of the things that when we look at in our, in our world today, you know, we can look at this um, just in, from a human standpoint, and of course elections tend to bring this out about how not connected we are. And that's just in our own nation or even in our own state. If you want to ruin Christmas parties, uh, let me help you. Um, locally, just state very loudly a position for or against rail 
just say, you know, having a rail system is the best thing that's ever happened to Hawaii. Just say that. And then and when they start fighting, then you kind of leave and you start it in another room. Um, I mean, there's so many things that, that, that divide us. They seem so disconnected. But he's not just saying, I'm just going to connect good and bad things. This idea of him holding all things together, that he's uniting all things, is also this idea that he is he's going to restore them to what they were created to be. And one thing we learned from Genesis is that not only did God create everything, he created it all good. All good. He's going to bring it all together. Now you might think, well, is that some kind of universalism? No, it's not some kind of universalism. Not in the sense that, hey, you know, we're all God's children and, and he's going to make us all, you know, good. No. It's really not the context. But there is this, this sense of him restoring and him holding together that even things that that might to out of context be bad he's going to create a new context see for us to understand this we got to know and we got to understand Jesus we got to understand what is what the plan is we got to understand what God means when he says he wants us to be united. You see, differences, they're not wrong. Difference isn't wrong. Not in and of itself. Division is wrong. But difference, not so much. But when it talks about Jesus being the one who unites, it seems that two things are going to go on here. One is Jesus is going to remove all of the man-made differences, all of the man-made divisions, all of the divisions we have that are there because of sin. And we got a lot of those. We got a lot of those. We, we find all kinds of reasons to, to separate ourselves and divide ourselves and to group and to pull away so much of this you know us and them some sometimes it's hard to keep track you know like because there's so many different things going on some things you're on somebody's side with you're against them in some other situations but Jesus is going to remove the differences and of course we're going to talk more about this later on we get to the questions what did Jesus come to do but just so you know, you know, we, we just to remind you, we're going to look at what Jesus did on the cross and how on the cross he, he wants, you know, on the cross, he's going to he's going to accomplish the work of conquering sin and death. So the divisions that are caused by sin, by those who 
who have received what Jesus did for them on the cross, he's, he's removing them. But he's not just removing the differences caused by sin. He's also uniting the differences that come from God. That God created the world with diversity for a reason. You know, he, he didn't just make the whole world one thing. He didn't just populate it with one species. He didn't even make all of the human beings exactly the same. We're not even, in case you didn't know this, you're not the same gender. Just remind you, there's a difference. So he's uniting the differences made by God. You know, sin is what makes the differences between male and female makes it a problem and makes it divisive. And Jesus comes, as we read in the New Testament, he's come to make us all one. There's no Gentile-Jew division. It's not male-female, not slave or free. Those are all man-made differences, man-made walls come from fallen humanity. He's come to unite these differences made by God. And so we, we, don't, we don't just look at what Jesus did on the cross. We also look at the resurrection. Because the uniting of those differences means something has to change about us. We can't just keep trying our hardest as we are. We need to be different. And we are made different through the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. The resurrection shows us the new life that comes in Christ. Shows us the power of God and of His Spirit. In verse 18, it tells us He is the head of the body, the church. You know, we talk about being the body of Christ, and, and sometimes I think we think of that being the body of Christ as, you know, that, that um, it's kind of just up to us. You know, that, that we just kind of get together, and if we agree on stuff, then that, you know, we can work together and do stuff together, and whatever we do collectively is, is fine. But it tells us here, he is the head of the church. He's the head of the church. And when it talks about body, it's not talking about one of us is the brain. You know, it's not talking about, you know, that you know, one of us has like control. It's in Jesus is the head. You know, <clears throat> I, I want to, you know, do everything that we do as a church. I want it to be something that we can say with all confidence that this is what Jesus as our head would have us do. And the only way I know how to do that is I need to go look at what His Word says and I need to study His Word and understand His Word and try to do everything we can consistent with His Word. And I need to do that myself. And we need to help each other. It always comes back to God's Word. If He is the head, 
we're gonna we're gonna learn about him. We're gonna know what he says. We're gonna know his direction by looking at God's word. My dad, um, um, one of the things he did uh, when he before he went full time into being a pastor is is he sold sewing machines. And I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember when you know people would go door to door selling things. I don't know that anybody really does that anymore. Um, but he would sell sewing machines. I remember the encyclopedia guy would come by our house and, you know, things like that. Um, and, you know, sewing machines are small enough. You could take a sewing machine. But sometimes what the person was selling was, was too big. Maybe they were going through the, you know, farmland and selling tractors. And it's, you know, hard to carry a tractor with you or drive it around. So they would make these, like, salesman samples. And they would be pretty awesome. As a matter of fact, there's kind of a collector's kind of group that collects these salesman samples because they would be ex exactly what the, the full size looked like. It might be a piano, it, you know, it could be some kind of machinery or something like that, but they'd have a salesman sample. And I know the church is more than this, but sometimes I think that, that we can think of the church as being Jesus's salesman sample. He, he's, he's trying to show the world, this is what happens. This is what happens when you follow me. This is what happens when, when, you, when you will give up your way of trying to do everything and you know, yield to the Spirit. This is what happens. This is the kind of community that, that, that happens. This is the kind of love that generates. This is the kind of you know, closeness and fellowship that you find. This is the fulfillment. Everything that I've promised you, this is it. This is the salesman sample. This is the kingdom. This is the church. And if that were the case, you know, the question I ask is, would people buy what Jesus is selling? If he used us as his salesman, as his salesman sample. If, if we were the ones he was carrying door to door. And he says, this, this is what I'm trying to do. In fact, this is what I've already done. Here's the sample. He's the head of the church. We are the body. As the body of Christ, we should in some way reflect what our head is telling us to do. The last point is simply this, is that Jesus is holding all things together. And again, we're going to talk about this more later, but he's also the reconciler. He's the reconciler. He says, in verse 20, he reconciles to himself all things. It kind of connects with that idea of uniting all things. But we know what Paul writes in other places. He thinks of Jesus as being the reconciler in, in first and foremost, reconciling us with God. As he says in Romans, so that we can have peace with God. There's never going to be reconciliation among human beings unless there are human beings who are reconciled to God. And that reconciliation comes through the cross. 
And so we have, through the cross of Jesus Christ, we can have peace with God. It's Jesus as the reconciler. And if we have peace with God, we then have hope for having reconciliation with each other. This whole thing about uniting all things, bringing all things together, this whole thing about being the body of Christ is possible because Jesus is the reconciler. That's why throughout the Bible, from Old Testament forward into the New Testament, there's always a connection between our love for God and our love for each other. And if you say my love for God is growing, but your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is not growing, you are not growing in your love for God. You're growing in your love for whatever God you've made. Because the Bible makes it clear that those things go hand in hand. And if you think like, well, I, I'm going to just skip that loving God place and just loving God part. I'm just going to, you know, we're just going to love each other. We're just going to, you know, all you need is love. You know, Beatles said that. Must be true. No. They go together. We can't go straight to love. We, we have to go to the cross. Because our hearts aren't capable of, of, of holding to God's high standard. And as I said last week, and I will say often, you know, God's standard is that we love everyone perfectly all the time. And so what do we find here in Colossians 1, 15 through 20? Well, there's a lot. It could get very complicated. But in the answer of who is Jesus, we see this very high view of Jesus. Jesus is, is not just a baby. He's not just a human being. Not just a great man. The Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas, the Jesus we need to, to get to know and to keep getting to know better and better is the Jesus who is the Son of God, the Creator. As Eric read from John 1, the Word, the Word who becomes flesh. He's our blessed Redeemer. He is indeed God's love embodied, and He's Lord of all. There's so many other names that we find from Scripture, each worthy of us looking at deeper and deeper. The King of Kings, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. Let's make it a point this Christmas. Let's not complicate this by, you know, getting so distracted. And let's just focus on who is Jesus. Maybe it's enough for you just to take one of these terms and study this term, understand it more about what the Bible teaches. And the question this morning is, is this who Jesus is to you? Is Jesus this preeminent, supreme, the one who has the fullness of God? And if he is, how then shall you live? Let's pray.